From Northern California Public Media and Mensch Media, welcome to Living Downstream. I'm your host, Steve Mencher. This time, we take you to a little city with big plans for changing the world. While we're there, we ask what role local governments can play in the movement for climate justice. That's where climate activism and the fight for social justice meet. the summer of 2020 was the summer of racial and social justice, then the summer of 2021 was the summer of climate change. Here's a sampling of the TV news from a single day, July 14th. Dozens of wildfires burning out of control in the West. The first megafire of 2021, seven times the size of San Francisco. More severe weather is expected in the U.S. this week. Scientists are now pointing to climate change as a major factor in weather events like the record-breaking heat waves we've been seeing out West. In a matter of hours, parts of Pennsylvania doused with up to 11 inches of rain. Residents forced to flee their homes. But look above behind me. These aircraft are dropping gallons of water down below to fight this fire from above. City of Bozeman declaring a stage two drought and enacting mandatory outdoor watering restrictions. The goal is to cut city water use by 20%. A level three evacuation order is in place around the Darlene fire. The evacuation center is set up at Lapine Middle School. Scientists have predicted this for the last 70 years, but it's actually happening more quickly and it's more intense than we realized. But if you weren't glued to your television on July 14th, and you happen to live in Ithaca, New York, and you braved a light summer rain to venture onto the downtown pedestrian mall known as the Commons, you might have heard this instead. You know, the best way of, of moving forward, moving past the division that we have, the best way of synchronizing our efforts to fight climate change and justice, the best way of working together is, you know, starting a conversation. And that's what we're trying to do here today. That's Luis Aguirre-Torres, the city of Ithaca's director of sustainability. He stands on a small stage in a black t-shirt and jeans, addressing a gathering of maybe 40 people. He's there to launch a project he calls 1,000 Conversations About Our Future. So the whole concept behind 1,000 Conversations is join us in the conversation. Join us in literally changing the world. Help us tell the story 10 years from now of how of how the transformation that changed the entire planet started here in the commons today, July 14, 6 p.m. You heard that right, the transformation that changed the entire planet. Ambitious stuff from a small college town nestled deep in the hills of central New York State. As you'll hear today, Ithaca sees itself as a living laboratory for climate justice. Climate justice is based on the recognition that the people whose lives are most disrupted by climate change, the people who tend to die in the storms and heat waves or to lose their homes in the fires and floods, are generally the people with the least money, the most precarious jobs, the least access to health care, the shabbiest housing, and the least reliable transportation. So if you want to do something about the climate emergency, the thinking goes, you can't just focus on things like reducing greenhouse gas emissions and preparing for disasters. 
you need to address long-standing social and economic inequities at the same time. What we're gonna do is gonna make sure that communities like Flint, Baltimore, the South Bronx... Climate justice is the big idea behind the Green New Deal, the resolution that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez first introduced with Senator Ed Markey in 2019 and reintroduced in April of 2021. We're gonna transition to a 100% carbon-free economy that is more unionized, more just, more dignified, and guarantees more health care and housing than any we ever have before. That's our goal. That's the goal of a Green New Deal. Congress hasn't formally adopted the Green New Deal, but many local governments around the country have gone ahead and passed their own versions. Ithaca is one of them, and it's brought in a man with a global vision to lead the charge. Longtime public radio reporter and Ithaca resident Jonathan Miller takes us there. People like to brag that our town is centrally isolated. We're four hours from New York City, four hours from Philadelphia, four hours from Toronto. There's no interstate or Amtrak station, and if you think you may have passed through on your way somewhere else, you haven't. We're not on the way to anywhere. We have beautiful gorges and waterfalls, and we sit on a big, deep lake. If you count the city and the town that surrounds it, the population's about 50,000. Add 30,000 students at Cornell University and Ithaca College, and you get what some surveys rank as one of the best-educated metropolitan areas in the country, although metropolitan is a bit of a stretch. The effects of climate change are not as dramatic here as they are in other places. The weather is definitely getting weirder. We sometimes have floods and we sometimes have droughts. But we're not what you'd call a frontline community. 9, 10, 11, 12. Climate crisis we can solve. fossil fuels in the ground. But there's a huge amount of energy in the climate fight here. Climate activists have been meeting every month since 2008 to share information and strategies. Scientists at Cornell are working on all sorts of technical solutions, from earth source heating to creating fertilizer from human waste. Led by a young black mayor who spent time as a kid living out of the family car, the city government isn't just progressive, it sees itself as a global player on the environment. Hello, my name is Savante Myrick, and I am the mayor of the city of Ithaca, New York. Here's from a video posted on the city's Green New Deal website. As we enter this decade of action, while still dealing with the effects of a global pandemic, the United Nations is calling on all national and subnational governments to step up ambition beyond the national determined contributions. The city of Ithaca is accelerating the implementation of the Ithaca Green New Deal, through which we commit not only to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also to reduce inequality, enhance quality of life, and improve human development. That last part, the inequality and human development part, is relatively new. Ithaca City Council passed its Green New Deal resolution in June of 2019. It committed to making the city carbon neutral by 2030, not just in city operations, but in everything that happens here. Industry, housing, transportation, business. It also promised that the benefits of whatever it did would be, quote, shared among all our local communities to reduce historical, social, and economic inequities. 
Ithaca's economy has been doing pretty well the last few years, unlike most of the towns around here. But sustainability director Luis Aguirre-Torres points out it's economically and demographically similar to much of the country, with poverty, homelessness, inequality, and other challenges. He says that makes it a good model for other places. It's also where the 1,000 conversations idea comes in. So those who have suffered the effects of climate change, those who have been victimized by the current economic regime, those who have been you know, discriminated against, those are the ones that have the experience to tell you what it's like and, and what it would be like if those things didn't exist. So you need to bring them in. You need to bring them into the conversation. And yeah, we're talking about having 1,000 conversations with the community. And one, you know, it's a, it's a nice slogan, 1,000 conversations with the community. But what we're trying to do is to have a massive, long conversation with everybody who's willing to talk and willing to listen. Aguirre Torres is not the most obvious person to lead that conversation. He just moved here in the spring of 2021, although his wife has been teaching at Cornell since 2011. He grew up in Mexico City, where he got a PhD in engineering. He spent years traveling the world designing optical networks. Then somewhere along the line, he says he saw the light on climate change. He helped Arnold Schwarzenegger implement climate legislation in California. Then he worked with the U.S. State Department advising Latin American governments on their climate policies. Now he's taking his big picture mindset to a much smaller stage. I've been you know, in conversations with people where, where jokingly, but they mock that I'm not from here or, or that I, uh, my vision is, is too international. And it's a funny thing to think because I think exactly the opposite. You know, I think it gives me a ton of ideas. You know, I grew up in a country with very few resources in a time that was very difficult. Uh, very few people had access to education. So the fact that I had the resources, that I had food, that I had education, people think that it makes me think that that, that, that the other things don't exist. But no, on the contrary, it makes you value so much more. As a Mexican living in the United States, Aguirre Torres has had personal experience with racial bias. He tells a story about being invited to the White House to meet with President Obama and being arrested outside his fancy hotel and hauled to the police station for questioning. He says his crime was being brown. It helped him realize just how many challenges so many people face just living day to day. To identify all the issues that have to do with climate justice, just look at what makes life in America really hard for some people. That's what you need to look into. And, and then, you know, you will end up with a huge list. But that's what climate justice is about, because the least able you are to prepare yourself, to educate yourself, to communicate or to listen and understand, the, the more likely that you're going to be affected. So we, we need to go to, like, try to solve those issues that for many people, and, and they tell me, you know, it goes beyond your mandate. You're, you're not here to solve an economic issue. You're not here to solve an education or health issue. But at the end of the day, it all has to do with climate change. So what we need to do is to, is to have a more holistic approach to fighting climate change. And that has to do with legislation. That has to do with the way we deal with the federal government, with the state government, the way we deal with the business uh, community. So it has to do with everything. Aguirre Torres is trained as an engineer, but he says he tends to think like an economist. He sees both climate change and social injustice as evidence of market failure. 
Plus, he's a numbers guy. When he first got to Ithaca, he tried to figure out how much it would cost to make the kinds of infrastructure changes that would bring the city's carbon emissions down to where they need to be. It turned out that one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gases was from heating buildings with gas and oil. So why not convert all the buildings in the city to heat with renewable electricity? And then I did the numbers. Uh, and when you do the numbers, you'd like it, it, it becomes an impossibility. You know, some homes, like homes for five people, you know, single family homes could cost you $70,000 to retrofit and electrify. And, and who can afford that? So I started talking to a number of uh, people with money and, and eventually, you know, I, I ended up talking to somebody who was willing to issue a bond on behalf of the city. You know, somebody was like, you know what, I can raise the money for you. So they talked to some investors, they liked what they heard, they gave them the money and then we started thinking about, okay, how can we do this? Uh, once again, you know, the fact that we're looking at this as an economic issue, it, it has us thinking in financial terms. So what happens if we create a nonprofit that raises money from the better off part of the city and we get the government but also philanthropic organizations to match it? What if we calculate the interest rates that the entire city would have to pay for this program and we raise that money for them? So at the end of the day, it becomes zero interest for everybody. So we did that and now we have $100 million that we hope we're going to use to provide a zero-cost retrofitting and electrification for at least 1,600 buildings in the city. To give you a sense of scale, $100 million is $20 million more than the city's annual budget. The scheme has made national and even international headlines, and other cities have been calling to ask for details. But some of Aguirre Torres's other initiatives, like engaging the community in 1,000 conversations, have gotten off to a slower start. And welcome back to WRFI's special call-in with Luis Aguirre Torres. In an attempt to be helpful, I volunteer to host a call-in show at our local community radio station. I ask Aguirre Torres to lay out the case for the Green New Deal. We're masked up if we sound a little short of breath. The Green New Deal is this mission-oriented approach to, to the economy. We're really trying to transform the way we see the world, the way we relate to each other. We're trying to redefine the relationship that society has uh, with the government, for example. And, and we're trying to basically create a, a new future, a new future that is uh, you know, around equity, around justice and sustainable prosperity. But we need to do this at the same time that we are reacting to what's happening, which is you know, climate change. So we need to take action against climate change, but this is a fantastic opportunity to take into account everything that we forgot for a while, everything that we didn't see for a while. You know, all, all the people that are suffering, and it has nothing to do with skin color, it has nothing to do with ethnicity, it is just people who have been affected by climate change and we want to do right by them. So, I mean, for a while we were fighting climate change, but we were like doing it from a position of privilege. But right now, you know, that's over. Like right now, we actually need to come together as a community and, and we need to make sure that everything that we do benefits everybody or nobody. Only a few people call in, but we have some clips lined up that reporters at the station have collected over the last few days. Several of the people complain about housing costs. Rent here is almost as high as in New York City. It really doesn't matter if like the Green New Deal goes through or not if people don't have good places to live. I mean, it's important. You know, the Others want to talk about bus routes and bike lanes. One person wants more information on the $100 million deal with private investors, like how would that actually work? 
A man named Anthony, interviewed at a low-income housing complex, wants to talk about jobs. I spent eight years in the Marine Corps, okay? And to come and say, okay, I I want to work here, I want to get a job here. I can only get jobs that are of minimum wage, for one, and two, it's not even respected that much to be a veteran and say, oh, well, hey, you should apply for this. Don't worry about the degree. It's more like, no, you need a degree. Let me start by saying, you know, like the, the number one program that we have, like, you know, the umbrella program that we have is, is 1,000. It's 1,000 conversations with the community, 1,000 electrified and retrofitted buildings, 1,000 electric vehicles, and 1,000 jobs. You know, the Green uh, New Deal is working under the assumption that there's, you know, a new economy that we are creating. We are creating new industries, and these industries are going to attract companies, and those companies are going to create jobs. For example, we're trying to retrofit, actually the number went up, so we're trying to retrofit 1,600 buildings in the city. We calculate that we need about 400 people to get the job done. We're refocusing a lot of the uh, workforce development efforts that were already being undertaken by organizations like Cornell Cooperative Extension, and we're going to try to take that and, and turn it into a program entirely focused on the Green New Deal. But the cool thing about it, and I think this is this is beautiful, the whole program is going to have a way of, of moving from, from one kind of job to another, depending on what you want. You can join and, you know, assist in, for example, installing solar panels. You know, there's going to be certifications for that. There's going to be training for that. But you could also be part of the team that is going to do operations and management, and you could be developing the software, or you could be developing the app that will help us control the software. You could also get into the financial side of things, you know, and there's going to be training for all of those things. So this is an opportunity for everybody to redefine their purpose, their career, and to be part of the green economy. The idea of giving everyone a chance to find their purpose and become a part of the green economy feels a little remote where I'm walking now. Right now we're walking towards uh, Buffalo Wings, Home Depot. This is life behind the big box stores. Richard Rivera leads me down a muddy trail into a wooded area known as the jungle. I call it the encampments because I think if you're in a place called the jungle, then you're thought of as a savage, a lawless person. About 50 people live here, some in beat-up trailers, others under tarps strung between the trees. The mosquitoes are fierce. How you doing? Rivera's in his 50s, slender with a shaved head. He works with a local group that helps incarcerated people and their families. He's also an outreach worker here in the encampments. It's only Richard. I'm walking by. We stopped to talk to a man named Chris. Because I'm working on a podcast about climate justice, I ask him if he ever thinks about climate change. I don't know climate change. Um, I, it's natural. It happens all the time. I think we're focusing on the wrong places for that stuff. You guys are right near water and it's really low and I guess there is some flooding. You worry about getting worse or not so much? Oh, I could, but if you were here three weeks ago, this was like all water, all water, everywhere. Like you couldn't move and not be squishing down two inches into the mud. A few minutes later, we meet a woman named Alicia or Allie. She's 25 and she's lived in the encampment since she ran away from home at age 13. I'm here because I'm not comfortable out there. Like, I, I had a three-bedroom trailer, and I'd rather be here. 
because I'm more comfortable. I can listen to my music as loud as I want to. Um, I have, I also have mental health disorders, so like I have schizophrenia and stuff. Allie has two kids, six and four. She's lost custody of both. Rivera asks her how she feels about the future. I'm worried because a lot of us don't really, like, we can't keep what we have to keep us set. It's just, it's hard to survive when we're doing, when we do what we do, you know? What y'all did during the rainy season this time when it rained so much? I mean, this place was really bad. Uh, it was mostly like we had to move people around, but pallets, <laughs> pallets are our saviors. As long as we can keep them up off the ground, we're normally pretty good. Richard Rivera tells me he's helped seven people move out of the encampment since he arrived here two years ago, but it's never straightforward. People are complicated, he says, and they have complicated lives. Rivera's own story is a lesson in that. My experience was I um, was raised by a single mother with eight other brothers and sisters, and um, we lived in the Bronx, and we lived in Brooklyn, and my mom shacked up with a, a heroin addict. We were on public assistance. He used to take all the money, so around 7 or 8, I dropped out of school. By the time I was 16, I was already robbing places at gunpoint, and one instant, I went into a bar and grill to rob a place, and I murdered a New York City police officer, the New York City police officer that was in the bar. Uh, it was a horrible uh, crime. I went to prison. Uh, when I entered prison, I couldn't read or write. While in prison, I earned a bachelor's and master's, and just last month, I graduated from Bard with another degree. When I came out, I was interested in issues of social justice, but I'm also a researcher. I like doing ethnographies. When I got involved here, I've been working here for the last two years collecting narratives, trying to understand the relationships, what makes the jungle, what is the jungle, how it functions. I started out with the question, how could a place like this exist in a place like Ithaca that has this self-image as a progressive, forward-thinking place? Then it dawned on me that the jungle actually supports a lot of jobs in Ithaca. There's this whole army of people being supported by the existence of this place. And, and it occurred to me that Ithaca doesn't support the jungle as much as the jungle supports Ithaca. And, and that these organizations and agencies are really engaged, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think unconsciously, in the production of failure. I ask him if he's cynical, if he's given up hope. He takes a deep breath. My idea is this. I, I just want to sustain life. I want to find life and sustain it. And life will surprise you. They'll make different choices. They might age out of this. It might just be too cold one winter. We don't know what is going to affect a person's life. So we must sustain life until we can do something different. Build relationships of trust that when they're ready, they're really trusting on you to help them do it. You know what I mean? You know, you're talking about how much effort it takes for just one person and how it might not even be successful. And then... You know, this is decades and decades of work to, to not, change it's society. Not many, it's not that many people. We have a small population that with individual attention and, 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 and speaking to them the right way, we could perhaps change the way we do things. What, what, what are your thoughts about the, the sort of Green New Deal idea of 
of coupling environment with I think I, I think the social project, justice. The project invites us to reimagine uh, how we're going to choose to live in the future, right? And that leaves it open for us to be, come up with innovative and creative ways to take care of the environment and also take care of the people that live in it. In 2020, hundreds of Ithacans came out week after week to protest the killing of black people by the police. It was the first time many had marched for civil rights or racial justice. The rallies continued through the summer, mainly led by people of color. Those who are in power, white or black. A local man named Jordan Clemens was a regular speaker. What color you are, what you represent. If you're not for the greater good of this community, for all, you will be held accountable. You will be hearing from us. You will be having us as a community get together. You will have us parade in your institutions and demand justice. Clemens has since started a community development organization that includes climate education as a key component. At the same time, local climate groups have been more emphatic in their embrace of social justice causes like racial equity and indigenous rights. Laura Branca heads the Dorothy Cotton Institute, a civil rights group here in Ithaca. She appreciates the role that the city government has played in encouraging those connections. What I really like about Luis Aguirre Torres is sort of rethinking of the, the Green New Deal is really centering climate justice as the organizing problem and principle. For years, Branca has been working to bring Ithaca's environmentalists and social justice activists together. Back in 2011, she co-founded a program called Building Bridges for exactly that purpose. After the city passed its Green New Deal resolution in 2019, she offered to help bring new voices into the conversation. Some of the folks who are most impacted have to be at the table where the policies are being created. And that's not, that's not, it, it sounds like a great principle, but it's not that easy to pull off. Branca says many of the most vulnerable people don't feel comfortable standing up and addressing a city council meeting, and not everyone has access to a computer where they can join a Zoom call. So she helped set up a system where people whose voices tend to get left out get to lead discussions about the Green New Deal. The question that people were being asked is, what does it mean to you? What comes to mind when you hear about a Green New Deal? And secondly, what kinds of social issues are urgent and present in your life and the lives of your family and friends that you think the Green New Deal strategies have to address in order for it to be the equitable, beneficial-to-all vision that the city has put out here? They're still gathering data, but so far, she says, folks want to talk about jobs, affordable housing, air quality, public transportation, healthy food, the cost of living. But she says that doesn't mean they're not also concerned about the climate. It's kind of like when, when I was growing up and we were living with the bomb, the nuclear threat. And it was sort of, a, and war, and it was a backdrop that just depresses you. You're not thinking about it every day because you're not necessarily in a position to go out and make it stop. 
But it's not as though people don't think about it. Everybody's got news. They know that there are fires raging. They know that there are floods. They know that the climate here has changed. It's noticeable. It's very noticeable. People see that the seasons are different. They see how hot it is in the summer and how wet it is and how the snow is different and when winter starts. So it's not like it's not on people's minds. I ask her if there's any conflict between the long, slow work of social change and the urgency of the climate crisis. She gives me what I'll politely call an exasperated look. I don't feel like we can indulge in conversations about the timelines being different. There's no question that the climate crisis is life-threatening, dramatic, awful, heart-wrenching, and massive. There's no question about it, and we have to act now. And on the other hand, somebody in my family could go home from work in his car and get pulled over and stand some chance of being arrested or shot by law enforcement. There's nothing here that isn't urgent. There's just none of it isn't urgent. There's only so much one town or city can do to stop global climate change or to heal centuries-old societal wounds. But maybe by focusing public attention and public money on efforts that connect those challenges, local governments can be catalysts for change. And if they share their experiences with other places, maybe the movement will spread. Earlier, we heard Luis Aguirre-Torres claim that the transformation of the entire planet began in Ithaca on July 14, 2021. But in his speech that day on the Ithaca Commons, he also admitted, it will only happen if we make it happen. It's not easy to change the world, but it's something that everybody should strive for. Seriously, you know, if you think about it, like everybody who has tried to change the world, nobody decided to do it and start like, yeah, you know, we're going to do this adequate effort to change the world. Everybody goes for something stupid, ridiculous, extraordinary. And that's what we're trying to do. If we do our job right, at some point, just imagine that climate change is in every conversation. Injustice is a thing of the past. We don't talk about the difference in skin color. We don't have to tell stories about how somebody was mistreated. Imagine a world where we're just listening to music because that's what we like doing as a community. I just want you to imagine what it could be and come with us. Today's episode of Living Downstream was reported and produced by Jonathan Miller. You can check out his work at homelands.org. He got help from Jimmy Jordan, Felix Teitelbaum, Esther Rakusen, and Fred Balfour at WRFI, Community Radio for Ithaca and Watkins Glen. You can learn more about the station at WRFI.org. For more about Ithaca's Green New Deal, visit IthacaGreenNewDeal.org. Thanks to Richard Rivera and the group OR, that's O-A-R for Opportunities, Alternatives, and Resources of Tompkins County. Also to Laura Branca of the Dorothy Cotton Institute and Jordan Clemens of the Unbroken Promise Initiative. You can find links to all of them in our show notes. We used original music from pianist and Ithaca native Ben Miller. 
Also the song Hills of Ithaca, with words by Woody Guthrie and music written and performed by the Burns sisters. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Shulman. I'm Steve Mencher, the founding producer of Living Downstream, and I was the story editor. Chris Lee is radio executive producer, and Darren Lachelle is the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media. Subscribe to Living Downstream on Apple Podcasts, comment on it and rate it there, and find it wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about us on NPR One, and a lot of you are finding us on Spotify. Thanks. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at our website, norcalpublicmedia.org slash living. Thank you.